0: All right, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. That is where we are at this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 18. Now, if you are uh, new with us today, you're visiting, you're going to be like, what's with the bomber on the thing, man? Why do you guys have a World War II bomber? Well, we see the book of Ephesians as communicating God's truth at high altitude, and it is just dropping truth on us. It is six chapters, and it's just constantly saying, man, here's the truth of God, and here's another truth of God, and here's another truth of God that can Shape your life. In fact, chapters 1 through 3 are all about here are truths. It doesn't tell us to do a single thing. It just reminds us of what grace is, the gospel, who God is, Christ, the Holy Spirit, and what that then means for us is chapters 4 through 6. Brings all of that truth and theology to the ground level and says, all right, now here's how this plays out. Here's how, because you are in Christ, you live for Christ and through Christ. To Christ that's the whole idea right now as we get into this I realize that sometimes dealing with theology or doctrine or truths is a little challenging because again you, you see it on the page you see it in the Bible and then you try to compare that to your own personal life or experience or practice and it's challenging because every one of us have a different set of conditions in life. Right, Every one of us come out of different backgrounds, we all have different challenges, and and certainly even if we were to share all of our stories as far as how we came to Christ, our conversion story, even all of those stories would be very different. But the good news is, for the Bible, for Paul, for Ephesians, is that while there might be a lot of differences between all of us in these details, there are some very clear commonalities and certainties that we can embrace. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, you don't have to go there unless you want to. We'll have the verse on the screen. But back in chapter 1, Paul says, you know what? There are some unifying themes that we all bank on. That these really count. In fact, going back there, starting in verse 4, we see that the way that we all came to Christ was actually the same. At least at its catalyst stage, we all came the same way. It says there that He, the Father chose us in him, the son, before the foundations of the world. Right? So before our moms became moms, before we gulped air in this world, God said, I love you. I choose you. I don't fully know what that means. People ask all the time, well, what exactly is that communicating? Like that God chose you. That's it. All right. You don't have to get hyper complicated with that it means he loved you he chose you and that's what we take as encouragement so every one of us came to Christ the same way God said I choose you and I want you the other thing is that we see that everybody that God said I choose is called to the same purpose there it says that we should be holy and blameless before him So if we're trying to figure out, man, what is my calling in life? Why do I actually have life on this sphere? We go, well, if you're in Christ and you know Jesus, it is for holy living and blameless living. That is why He saves us. The third encouragement in this that we all share is that in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And so the thing we all share in common is that we are all God's kids. We're all God's kids. If you know Jesus, you're God's kid, right? He's like, that's my boy. That's my girl. They're the ones I invest into. They're the ones I love. They're the ones I take great joy in and delight in because they're my kid. We all share this in common. And we're all kids for the ultimate purpose of the praise of His glorious grace, right? This is what we all share in common. This is what all of us are called to be a part of and we're called to do. And so because we're all kids to the praise of His glorious grace and we're kids that seek to be holy and blameless because God has loved us, we want to fight, to focus, to pray that we would realize that being adopted by grace means we are adopted to be childlike but not childish. Right? And there's a difference between childlike and childish. See, childlike says, you know what, I want to be like my dad. Childlike says, you know what, I want to trust, I want to obey, I want to enjoy. That's childlike, right? So we have the faith of a little child. We have the the, the, kind of the the mind of a, a child toward God in all the positive ways. That is childlike. Childish is where we start developing bad habits and bad behavior and doing things that are outside of what we're ideally wired for. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has this problem with the Christians that are there, right? Instead of being childlike, they're being childish. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, it says, Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. They're childish. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And so, what we see is that even though these people were Christians, right, they were God's kids, they weren't acting childlike, they were acting childish. In fact, anytime we, as followers of Jesus, choose to rebel, choose to disobey, choose to take our cues from our culture more than from Christ, from what the world says rather than what the Word of God says, anytime we do that, we start to become childish. And so we want to get back to, well, what does it mean to be childlike, not childish? Now, a few years ago, I actually preached through the book of 1 Corinthians, and when we got to this passage here, I had this idea for a video that kind of highlights how you see kids acting childish, and how that mirrors adulthood, and how we sometimes do the exact same things. And I figured it's Mother's Day, the video's like eight years old, it was actually shot on videotape. Isn't that the craziest notion? And... It's a video, all right, on tape. And so we shot this thing, and I thought, you know, it would be nothing more fun on Mother's Day than to show this video I shot eight years ago. Also, I had more hair, which is awesome. And uh, we can enjoy this little bit of memory lane with my kids and their friends, and really highlighting the difference between what Christ expects of us to be childlike and childish. So go ahead and check this out. These are kids and some some of their really close friends. Pretty cute, huh? But here's what they're going to look like and say, oh, uh, about 40 years. Pretty impressive, I got you, babe. isn't it? I got you, babe. Say so why this shameless days. use of childhood labor? Here you go, you guys. Here's a dime for all your work. You try to split that up among yourselves and, and don't tell the union, okay? Okay, you guys can get out of here. Go on.
1: But I didn't get one.
0: He's got the money. Go with him. Mm-hmm. Well, in this section of the letter, we see Paul talking about being childlike, not playful little children like we've been seeing, but, but sort of pathetic children, spiritual children, people that are adults, but they're kind of trapped in a, a, a childish mentality, people who either refuse or, or don't even know how to grow up spiritually. And so it got me thinking,
1: how are little kids sort of like the kids in the church, Adults, like kids, make a lot of messes they expect others to clean up. Hey,
0: Emma, can you come here real quick? Hey, do you want to do me a favor and clean up this mess in your playroom? I didn't do what Honor did. Will you please go get Honor for me? Honor. Hey, Honor, you want to clean this mess up for
1: me? I didn't do what Emma did. Adults... Like the kids don't like to own up to their sins. Grayson, look at me.
0: Show me your hands. Have you been eating any chocolate? No. Are you positive? Hey, wait, look at me. No.
1: Look at me. Did you do any chocolate at all? No. Sometimes you see that adults are sorta like kids and they they pout when they don't get things their way. When there's a disagreement, they rarely try to stop and work things out. No, come on, Jane, let's just play basketball. I'm taking my ball and leaving. Sometimes adults are known for choosing what is sweet over what's healthy, candy over content.
0: All right, Tanner, do you want an orange or a sucker?
1: Adults seem to care more about song selection than they do about connecting with and worshiping Jesus Christ. All right, you guys, how about we sing this little light of mine? We don't like that song. Well, they just refuse at times to leave their comfort zone.
0: Hey, you guys, let's say we go tell people about Jesus, OK? You guys, don't you want to tell somebody about Jesus? Anybody about Jesus?
1: Adults are sometimes known to rebel, even against their better judgment.
0: Now, Grayson, don't touch that plate. You know, in the end, there's a lot of similarities. But the difference is that one day, my kids and their friends will grow out of their childishness. Some Christians never
1: will. If they say we're young and we don't know. We won't find out we grow.
0: Our babies are all grown up. <laughs> Man, my oldest went to prom last night. The middle one I taught to drive last night, and the little one had a gun to protect the big one because she was going to prom last night. <clears throat> Kids have grown up, all right? Right, but here's the thing sometimes we as adults, we don't grow up, especially in the spiritual realm, especially in our Christian faith. We choose lifestyles or dispositions or decisions or sins or just basic perspectives that remain more childish instead of childlike and so what's the solution what would Paul say to us in the book of Ephesians to begin to address some of those things to move toward childlike and away from childish well starting in verse 17 he begins to move right into that territory He says, now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, when Paul says this, these people had been Gentiles. So, you know, for them, that's their worldview. That's their background and culture. And what he's saying is don't live like the way you used to be. That's what he means by walk. He's saying, your walk, your lifestyle, your approach to the world, don't let it be like your old life. Let it be like a new life. The life you have in Christ. The life that's different. See, when Jesus sweeps into their lives, back in the book of Acts, man, everything changes. Right? Their perspective changes. Their pursuits change. Their passions change. Because they're liberated to a whole new way of living. A whole new reason being. And so he wants to anchor them back in that, right? And the same is true for us, right? We had our own lives, we were doing our own thing, and then Christ invaded our space with this glorious grace, and from that said, you know what? Life's different now. It's not just a grace that forgives us. It's not just a grace that says, you know what? God is, is not going to hold your account against you. It's also a grace that empowers you and strengthens you and shapes you. That's the essence of the gospel and the grace of God. So Paul is starting off by reminding them of, you know what? Hey, you were, you were made for something different now. Your life was invaded by Christ. So that you could be a contrast. A contrast. See, every one of us are these contrasting elements within our cultural environment. Every one of us are a beacon, as we're going to see even next week, of the light of Christ. That is our calling. And see, this is different than what we used to be and what the world around us who doesn't know Christ currently is. The world around us that doesn't know Christ, what we used to be, is trapped in a futility of mind, he says. Right, This empty way of thinking, this literally, it comes from a a word that means this idolatrous idol-worshiping background where we were constantly looking for things to fill us up, things to define our life, things to inform our identity, things to put our hope, our trust, our faith in, right? That's what we were, and then Christ comes and He says, man, you don't need those idols now, you need me. But the world around us still likes idols, still seeks after idols. That is the futility of their mind. They believe that idols, whatever they are, money, fame, power, relationship, government, morality, without Christ, whatever it is, these things will save. And They don't save, and Paul knows that. And so what he begins to then unpack is the challenge of the unsaved mind and how we should not walk in those old ways. How we should not have those old mindsets, Right? And so he starts to give kind of the contrast. And so he says, man, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Why, verse 18? They are darkened in their understanding. What I want you to understand about this whole passage, verses 18 and 19, that you'll want to embrace in this is... All these things are, are going to be put in negative tone. In other words, when Paul thought about the lost world, he didn't pretend like it wasn't really lost. He didn't look at the lost world and, and give them descriptors that were positive descriptors. He could identify the problem. And the first problem that we should acknowledge, just as much as Paul did, just as much as Jesus did, is that the world is darkened in their understanding. Now, they don't think they're darkened. In fact, they think they're illuminated, right? Right? I mean, if you ever read or listen to, like, Richard Dawkins, he's a very bright guy. He's very bright, scientifically very bright, well-educated, very articulate, can write very persuasively. He is a bright guy. He is so bright, he's dim. He's so bright, he's dim. He's so smart, he's so intellectual, that he looks at all the creation of God and his totality walk away is, from all this intricacy, there can't be a God. Right? So for him, he's so bright, he's dim. And that's sometimes what happens in the world. It is darkened in its understanding. Additionally, it's alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, sometimes the world is going to have knowledge about God. They're going to have knowledge about the Bible. They're going to know the information. But what they lack is knowing God, right? They lack really knowing him. It's, it's the difference between, you know, like studying a president and knowing about them versus really having a relationship with them. And the world is going to sometimes look at the Bible and go, man, you know what, um yeah, here's these errors and contradictions and it doesn't count and there's all these other religions anyway and who's to say who's right and everything else. So they have knowledge of religion and knowledge of Scripture, but they don't really know God. They're alienated from the life of God. They don't care about Him or consider Him or obey Him or worship Him or seek Him. right? They just kind of do their own thing. And this is the way our life used to be as well. We might seek other things, but we didn't seek the one true God in His way that's defined. Paul says the reason for this is due to their hardness of heart, right? No matter how it plays out, whether it's somebody that looks at God and says God is silly, or maybe somebody that looks at God and says God is stupid. Some will look at God and say God is sinister. Look at all the people He killed in the Old Testament. Others will look at God and say God's just a sexist. Some will look at God and say He's simple-minded. Some will even look and say, you know, what? the idea of God is sincere. I like the sincerity of it, but I just don't believe it. All of those are, in essence, having a hardness of heart. Whichever level that is, it's still hard because it still, in the end, says I'm not going to yield or surrender or believe in God at a level that requires my worship. I'll acknowledge at all sorts of different levels but not at a worshipful, submissive level. Because of this, Paul says, they have become callous. Callous. Hard, crusted over. When I was a kid growing up in Arizona, I used to spend my summers barefoot, which is foolish, all right? Like... We would run down like asphalt streets to try to get to like Circle K to get a Slurpee and like the asphalt's like 120 degrees. Foolish children. But we became very calloused on the bottom of our feet. Right? Stickers didn't bother us. The heat didn't bother us that much. We just kind of calloused over. And that's the same problem with the world around us. They begin to callous over to the things of God, the truths of God, the desires of God. How does that then play? They've given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity see paul's just highlighting his culture but but I, I can't help but but look at that right there and say in a lot of ways man that parallels our environment we are in a similar environment to the environment of Paul and Rome we're just facing that in our culture and increasingly it's true where what we are going to experience and i really believe over the next few years particularly we're going to experience a very unique slide because we we've been on the slide i'm not, i'm not prophesying anything i'm like kind of coming midway in going oh i guess i see the slide now But there is a slide that takes place that Paul acknowledges in the unsaved world. Here's the first part of the slide. Slide begins when people do shameful things, greedy things, and pure things in secret. Right? So they do it in secret. They hide it away. They hide it in their closet. They hide it in their bedroom. They hide it in some secret place in their mind. They they just hide their offense, whatever it is. But they're doing it, but they hide it. What eventually happens in the slide is it goes from happening privately to then happening publicly. They start to come out with it. Now, most of the world around them, the culture around them, looks and goes, uh, I don't know if that's good behavior, right? So it's going to be a bit judged by culture at large, but they finally come out and they say, this is what I am, this is what I do, this is how I do it, and who are you to judge me? And that's the next part of the slide that happens publicly. The third part of the slide is where after a while, the culture is it keeps watching it and seeing it and just realizing more people are doing it, the culture starts to say, maybe it's not that big a deal, or maybe I shouldn't make that big of a deal of it, maybe I, I, that's not my opinion, but hey, it's their opinion, and I don't want to be judgmental, and I don't want to look like I'm condemning, so why not, let's just say, hey, teach his own, right? So then it accelerates that private to public to more public, because now the public is kind of used to it. They're kind of numb to it, whatever, you know, I'll tolerate it, I'll get by. Well, then eventually the slide goes further because then it goes from accepting it as kind of a eh, teach his own to now we begin to protect it, cultivate it, really celebrate it. Where even people that, that used to say, eh, start to get kind of lulled into it. And, and not that they fully embrace it, but you know what? In some ways, they just sort of, you know, it's, it's fine, it's good, and, you know, sometimes it's even kind of cute. Sometimes it's kind of entertaining. Sometimes it's just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm there. I'll get behind it. I'll back it. See, that's that's fundamentally the slide of of a culture that, that Paul warns of when when the hardness and the callousness and the darkness and all of it just picks up speed, keeps moving on the slide. And understand when the slide happens, there's there's two things in play. One part of the slide is just consequence, right? So as it begins to go down that path, you know what, with that, there's a certain level of human pain and human suffering and people start opening up their lives to a lot more things because the rules are changing and there's not as many rules, so people get a little bit more crazy because of the lack of rules. And so consequence starts to play a pretty significant role. But the other thing that we have to realize in the slide is that God plays a significant role too. In particular, God plays the role of bringing Wrath. Wrath. God brings judgment to the environment. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, we see this. It starts in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it goes from darkness, open, to affirmed, to protected, defended, legalized, and celebrated. And then people go, awesome they suppress the truth and unrighteousness notice that it says here for the wrath of god is revealed it doesn't say one day the wrath of god will be revealed against those things this says it is god actually will pour out wrath in the slide god will bring judgment in the slide god will bring pain and suffering to people in the slide as his judgment verse 22 shows the problem claim to be wise they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Man, in their day, those were the idols. In our day, the idols are very different. It's money, it's fame, it's power, it's notoriety, uh, it's anything you think is going to protect you or secure you or save you in this life. It's your little hell that you want to get out of and get into your little heaven, whatever that is, and those are the idols that we seek. And sometimes we seek idols more than we seek God. And Paul knows this, and Paul knows that it brings the wrath of God because the world, it goes after the idols. And so again in verse 24, he says, Therefore, God gave them up. Right? God is a part of the process. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This world mattered more than God. So again in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. They were filled with all sorts of manner of unrighteousness, evil, gossip, slander. They were haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Happy Mother's Day, all right? Um, you look at this list and you're like, Matt, why Romans one right now? I want to take mom to brunch after. You know, like, why? Because it's the slide. Right? It's the thing that Paul is saying to Christians. Man, be aware that you are to live as a counter-agent. Be aware that you're to be different. Because when the slide grabs hold, it's easy to get pulled with the momentum of the slide. It's just super easy, especially in our environment, right? Because we are so inundated with so many things trying to coax and encourage us to lower our standard, to not let God be the final authority, but for culture to be our final authority and all these things. And it is truly a slide. I mean, just in the last couple of months, you know, and I'm not typically the doomsdayer and I'm still not here. I'm saying, hey, Christians, be aware of how we get pulled in the slide and we need to be different. Um, I was just kind of analyzing my own life and circumstances and talking to somebody just a couple of weeks ago about how weird it is that uh, the new courage is so different than the old courage. So the old courage was, we would look at a police officer and say, man, that guy's courageous. Or a firefighter, or a mom who shields their child from some calamity or incident. A soldier was courageous. You You know what the new courage is? Just watch American Idol, or watch any show that has, like, judges, who then somebody comes out that is clearly out of the closet, clearly a homosexual, and you know what they say? Good for you. Keep being courageous. Way to have the courage to be who you are and come out. Right? You have a Christian athlete who makes much of Jesus and the press says, that guy's got to be quiet. You have a gay athlete come out and you know what it is? The president calls and says, you know what? You are a great example of courage. The game has changed on what courage is. Now, again, there was a time it was in secret. Then it was open, but the culture saw it a certain way. But now the culture sees it a different way and now you're courageous. That's the mark of courage. Now, if you don't know Christ, I get it. I get it. You don't know Jesus, you don't share Jesus' standards. I get how that can be courageous. Right? And I'm not here to you know, preach against the gay agenda any more than the straight agenda or the single agenda. I, I mean, that's not even my point, because they all have agendas, and a lot of times those agendas are sinful agendas. All of them. My point is how we get pulled into the slide. I say this because about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, on Facebook, one day I noticed all the icons changing. Right, so you notice this? Maybe this happened to you. If you have Facebook, if you don't have Facebook, you're my hero. Um, I'm I'm in the, the void of death. All right, so um, but, but all of a sudden, all these equal signs started appearing, these red equal signs, and it was the symbol um, to communicate support of of uh, equality for gay marriage. That's what it was. Um, and I, I wasn't troubled by the equal signs inherently, right? Because I go back to, uh, we're supposed to reach a lost world. A lost world doesn't know it's lost. We need to keep the definition, understand what a lost world is. It is, in fact, lost. It is, in fact, sinful. It needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love the world by bringing the gospel, but it doesn't mean we affirm. It doesn't mean we defend or protect. But what I was troubled by was all these equal signs were popping up with people who were Christian friends. That's what concerned me. It wasn't the equal sign in and of itself. I don't mind the world trying to save itself apart from Jesus. It's it's lost. We need to bring the gospel. But when Christians were affirming, and when Christians were like, this makes sense, this is just, I mean, this is fair, this is right, this is good. That was a concern because I'm like, ah, now we're getting pulled into the slide. And that's where it's different. Again, I'm not saying our job, and this is so hard to find the, the middle ground between being a condemner of culture and being an acceptor and proponent. Of culture. It's like, no, we're not called to either one of those. And it's a real tricky deal to be in the middle like that. I mean, it's really tricky, right? I mean, our job isn't to condemn culture. Culture's condemned. Let me do us a favor it's condemned. The world's condemned. God's already declared that. Our job is not to condemn it. At the same time, our job is not to embrace it, our job is to reach it, but to keep it in perspective. But reaching it means not getting sucked into it. But it's tough to not get sucked in. I look at other things, right? Just look around. Used to have been maybe 20 years ago. Let's say you would have had some sexual impropriety in private and it was videotaped and it hit the public. It would just be embarrassing. Now they'll give you a reality show for it. Right? I mean, it's true. It's the weirdest thing, right? You're a politician, you have an affair. What does that happen? CNN gives you a show. You leave office, but you get a new career. It's awesome. That's how it works. Pornography, man. Used to be so different. I was watching this show called uh, "How it was like um, How the '80s Shaped Us" or something like that on the Discovery Channel, and they were looking at Hugh Hefner and how he shaped the American culture in pornography. And they were showing like the earliest covers of Playboy, which I'm like, that looks like a cover of I don't know, like uh, Girl Scout magazine, (laughs) you know, like like in comparison to today where I read an article recently that said, you know what, pornography's finally reached its limits. They don't know where to go next because they've done everything from just simple nudity all the way to, to basically depicting rape and they just can't figure out the next threshold. So it's stuck until it finds the new thing. Right? And that's our culture. In fact, I was even reading something this week where this guy wanted to do research on the effects of pornography on the young male brain. The problem was he couldn't find a control group because every male that was of appropriate age had already been exposed. So he's like, I have no control. No control group to use. Right? Affairs used to be shameful. Now they're somewhat regular. Think about violence in our culture. Man, violence, we love violence. We cheer for violence. We dig violence even, as long as it's fictional. I was watching Comedy Central, there's a comedian on there, and I found him funny until I realized that everything he was poking at, the further he got down the road, uh, the the, the more it was human pain and suffering that he was making fun of. He started telling jokes about Sandy Hook, and he started telling jokes about Casey Anthony and killing her child, and I'm like, wow, they, they just gave this guy a show. And it's just cable entertainment now. But we get pulled along. Right? We get absorbed into it. We start watching movies. We were watching uh, The Italian Job when we were on vacation back in January. And finally, I remember Ellen and I were talking about it. We're like, this is such a weird thing. We're pulling for the thieves. We're pulling for the criminals. Like, one dude gets ripped off, and then the thieves break rank, and then there's a bad thief, and, quote, a good thief, and we're pulling for the good thieves to take from the bad thief, forgetting that all of them took from some dude, right? Like, go, good thieves, get the bad thief. You know what? We're idiots. That's what we are. Stupid. Think about some of your favorite sitcoms. There's the gay couple. You kind of like the gay couple now. They're kind of cute. You kind of pull for them. Right? You're just used to it. I'm used to it. Think about the romantic comedy where boy meets girl, and it's love at first sight, and you know they're destined to be together. Only problem is, he's married to this other lady, but she's an anchor and she's mean. Right? So... They deserve each other anyway, and she's difficult. And if she wasn't so difficult, he would be happily married to her, but she's a pain in the butt. So he needs dream girl that was always meant to be anyway. And we pull for that relationship. So I highlight all of these things, not to point a finger, I'm looking in the mirror. Maybe not on every example I gave, but boy, I'm looking in the mirror on some of these and go, man, we just get swept in. And we are called to be different right? We're called to be different. In fact, what what Paul says at the end is so important. says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. How close are we to giving approval? Because again, that is not counter. That is not different. That is not an influencer. That's just going with the flow. just going with the flow. What Paul says to us, though, is in verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What he's saying is, man, grace it removes your penalty, that's true, but grace also empowers you and changes your practice. You are not saved by grace to be just like the world, but saved. You're saved by grace to be an influencer, an agent of change to the world. To be something different, a breath of fresh air, somebody that stands on principle and truth, not just for principle and truth's sake, but because it is rooted in Jesus, right? That is the heart behind it. And so that is why it's about life in and for Christ. I want to be clear, as as soon as you start thinking about this message in this text, you go, that's right, we need to start fighting for morals and values and ethics. Stop. Stop. I do not want, would not advocate that any Christian fights for ethics and morals and values. In fact, we screw up the cultural conversation by making it about those things. It is not about those things. You ready? It is about the gospel of Christ that changes lives. It is about the gospel who can change a person. If we just make it about morals and ethics and values, we will create millions of whitewashed tombs at best they don't have any power to really overcome their challenges or their sins i mean as soon as we start making it much about what people do and not about the god who has done something to save people we've messed it up which is why paul says man assuming that you have heard about and were taught in him the truth that is in jesus see he makes it all about christ not about rules not about morals not about ethics not about values it's all about christ he is the subject to learn him he is the teacher to hear Him. He's the atmosphere. We're in Him. It's all about Jesus. I, I, I want to highlight this because again, I want to make sure that we understand what our goal is. Ethics is not our goal. Right? Godly is our goal. Godly is the goal. Grace, cross, resurrection, like Jesus, that's the goal. The world has plenty of good people. There are people in other religious backgrounds other than ours that are just better at ethics than us. Better at morals at times. More self-determined than we are. It's not about that. It is about Jesus. And from a life in Jesus, hopefully that shapes our character and it shapes our motivations and it shapes how we live life. It should shape it. Hands down, right? Being like Christ is is the driving thing. That's the target. But it's making sure we're being like Christ. Right? How does Paul say you... Advance that cause? Well, first off, he says you put off. You put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Imagine if I uh, came up here next Sunday morning and I wore um, a man scarf, right? Um, that's what I'm going to call it. These dudes that put the scarf and fold it and put it through and do that. man scarf. Can, can I tell you, unless it's frigid out, don't wear a man scarf, all right? It's inappropriate, all right, men. I'm just telling you. Your wife's awesome. You, I'll see you in the playground after school, um, right? Because <laughs> it's just not manly, all right. So um, unless you're a total hipster, and then you just look homeless, all right. So anyway, um, I'm not being nice suddenly, all right. I'm gonna. I don't know if I'll shift gears or not. We'll find out, all right. So. But if I did that, if I came out on a Sunday and I had the scarf and everything else, you know, you would say, Matt, that's just not you, man. That's just not you. And and that's what Paul's saying here. He's like, put off the old man. Why? Because that's just not you. It's not you. You're in Christ. You're a new creation. All things have been made new. So he says, man, because you're new, don't put on the old you like it's you. It's not you. Your old you is dead. Your new you is in Jesus and put off the old you. Don't wear those old OPs and your slip-on vans and your Billabong t-shirt with your Varney sunglasses. Don't. That died in the 80s. Let it be dead. All right? whole generation goes, Ah, what? Uh, no, it's coming back. That's why we want to keep it dead. All right? So, all right, keep it dead. So put off your old self. Don't wear it. He says in verse 23, He says, Be renewed in the Spirit's of your mind, right? And, and, and by that, you have to do that daily because every day, your environment, my environment is informing us. Every day, it's saying, here's our values. Every day, it's saying, here's how we're saving ourselves. Every day, it's reminding us to lower the standard in the bar. So every day, we must renew the mind. And then Paul says, man, make sure you put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Why does he say to do this? Because this is who we are. It's who we are, right? God has restored His image of Genesis 1 through the good news of Jesus. God has given us all the righteousness of Christ through the cross. God has made us truly saints. We're not sinners with Jesus. We're saints in Jesus. So we are holy. We are righteous. We have the likeness of God fully unleashed in us. And so Paul says, man, live like that. It's who you are. So live like what you are. You go, well, how do I do this? Two things. The first, diet. Your diet, right? How you wire the mind, what you feed on, will inform how you put off and put on. Romans chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is your diet. What you take in, what I take in, makes a difference. Especially in the Northwest, man, can I tell you what? People are crazy about their diets here. Like what they consume, you know? I mean, really, I'm like, oh my gosh, I stand in line at Starbucks and I have somebody in front of me and it's got to be soy this and lactose that and they have like 19 things to their one drink order. And so I just rebel, I'm like, coffee, black, now. You know, like, I... I can't even compete with 19, I, mean, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know, all organic this, make sure it doesn't have gluten, I, I hurt for you no gluten, people, gluten's awesome, all right, <laughs> yeah, I said it, I said it, all right, so, I'll be vilified later, but gluten is glorious, all right, now, if it really makes you sick, I got it, if it's just some dietary thing, you're missing out, that's all I'm saying, but we are so fixated on what we consume. And here God would say, man, then make sure your spiritual diet is healthy. Take in the Word of God. Find yourself in a context with other Christians that help pull best things out of you. Limit your exposures to things that you know erode conscience and conviction. Run from sin, man. Run from sin. Right? Just run as fast as you can. Most importantly in this, seek God Desperately. You have to seek God desperately. I, I just, again, I, I get so concerned about a message like this that will run to rules to fix it. I'm saying run to God, run to God to shape your internals. Exposure wins. If the world gets most of the, the exposure in your life, it wins. If Christ gets the exposure, Christ wins. It's all about exposure. So diet, wire the mind. The other one is exercise. Right? Diet and exercise are the key. Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This does not mean earn your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say uh, work toward salvation with fear and trembling. It's literally saying play out. Right? Work out means man, play out, exercise your faith, work out with fear and trembling. The good news is it's God who works in you to will and to act for His good pleasure. God takes pleasure in you. God wants to take greater pleasure in you by working out in you. I'm not advocating we work harder for God. I'm advocating that we seek hard after God and God will work it out in us. It's not about self-righteousness and it's not about legalism. It's about a life dependent on the gospel of grace to produce the life of God in us. And so Paul, he pushes all of that. And it says, man, grace frees us to this. To not be like we were, but to be like we're supposed to be. And to grow more into the likeness of Christ. And so he says, man, you are freed by grace. And you are freed to a number of things. First of all, you're freed by grace to honesty. He says, you want to be different than the world around you? Man, live in the context of honesty. Verse 25, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Satan's the father of lies. Jesus is the truth. We're in Jesus. We love the truth. Which is sometimes hard in our environment. We're born little liars. Right? I and mean, we're good at it, right? I mean, if you have kids, you know you can have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and suddenly the two-year-old is screaming. And you come into the room, what happened? And the four-year-old, I don't know. You're like, why is there a little handprint on your brother's cheek the size of your hand? I don't know right? Like, they're just good at lying when they're little. And then as we grow up, we become better liars. We become more sophisticated. We're more uh, aware of the subtleties. So we don't get in trouble. So we point the blame in another direction. We see it with our politicians. We see it with our companies. We see it with advertising. We see it with students when they cheat or plagiarize. We tell half-truths, exaggerations, the list goes on. You're a teenage boy, a good-looking girl's coming your way, you weigh, weigh about buck twenty, but when she comes. That's a lie, man. Alright, so um, we lie. We struggle with it. So Paul says, but boy, but grace, you have been saved to have honesty. So be honest, he says, man. Put away all falsehood, right? Because it's already been put away in Christ. Live who you are. Next, he says you're freed by grace to civility. He says, be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. See, it's great here because you go, man, that's awesome. Anger isn't a sin. I go, no, not till sundown. Then you're busted. All right? Um, And there's a reason for that. That's a grace. Because what happens is, is the more we stay angry, right, the more it fixates itself in our hearts and lives, and that spills out into bitterness and resentment or indifference about people. I've just written them off. I'm done with them. All right, that's a sign of anger. There can be very sinful anger, as we're going to see in a minute. He's going to say, man, put away all angry speech. There can be righteous anger. The problem is I rarely ever exercise it. Rarely. You can exercise it, but for the most part I get angry about lesser things and things that just irritate me more than they hurt God. So Paul's just putting it all in perspective, saying you can be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give an opportunity for the devil. He loves to take a seat at our house in the context of anger and go crazy. He says, but you're freed by grace to civility. We're also freed by grace to integrity. He says, let the thief no longer steal. I love that. That's so brilliant. Hey, you are a thief. Stop stealing. How novel. No 12-step program. No group therapy. No, tell me about your father. None of that, right? It's, hey, you're a thief. By the gospel. Stop being a thief. Not only that, he says... Do honest work with your own hands that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Right? So you do the opposite of stealing. You give. So don't steal from your boss, your marriage, your kids, your government, your entertainment, or your God. You give. He also says we're freed by grace to encouragement. Verse 29, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only as such is as good for building up as fit for the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. See, a lot of people look at this and go, corrupting talk is swearing. No, corrupting talk is anything that rots the environment. And some Bible studies are more corrupt in their talk than sailors in a bar, Right? Gossip about somebody, slander somebody, speak evil of somebody, and you bring corruption. That's corrupt talk. You rot the environment. You rot relationships. You rot somebody's perspective of another person. All of that is corrupting talk. That's why Paul says, man, no, build them. Right? Just build up. We're also freed by grace to forgiveness, which is maybe sometimes what we need so that we're not corrupt in our speech. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This week I was so just, man, driven through the chest by that verse 30 because I realized to the degree that I am close to the Holy Spirit is to the degree that I'm going to care about his feelings. And if I am not close to him, I'm probably not going to care much, whether he's grieved or happy or whatever else. If I'm not close to him, whatever. Whatever. It's no different than if we're not close. I may not be as concerned about how you feel about things as if we're close. Same thing. So we need to be close to the Spirit to care about what He thinks. And in that, when we do, man, He brings His heart into our heart so we're kind, we're tender-hearted. We forgive just like Christ did. And how did Christ forgive? Completely and without condition. That's what we shoot for. That makes us different. In fact, overall, Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God... As beloved children. There it is. He just punches it right back to what counts. All this stuff comes down to one real core thing. Imitate God. Not rules, not regulations, not laws, not systems. Imitate God. Childishness. Looks at grace and says, grace bails me out so I can do my thing. Childlike. Looks at grace and says, grace builds me up so I can do His thing. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank You for Your grace. Holy grace, in this case. And I prayed that we would be aware of our environment. Not so we can condemn it, not so we can point the finger at it, not so we can rant against it. That's lazy. Rather, so we don't get sucked into it, A, and B, so that we can bring the gospel to it, because we know that's the only thing that can change anything. So shape us and show us by your grace and for your glory
1: in your name. Amen.